Here in Acts 13 we have the account of Paul's preaching and I want to focus a little bit on Paul's self-perception, how he saw himself because this is really a lesson for us because our self-perception I think is the key or one of the keys to real spiritual success in our, in our walk towards the kingdom. But let's just start off in verse 2. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Separate me Barnabas and Saul, for the work whereunto I have called them. So it was as they were ministering to the Lord that they were called to this other ministry to make a missionary journey, the first missionary journey. And so whilst we are about spiritual endeavour, serving, ministering to other people, somehow out of that we are led further into, into further service. It's not as if uh, somebody who's not very committed wakes up one day and finds that they are called to, to do some great thing. It's more that as you commit yourself to the serving of the Lord, so out of that process he leads you further. And it reminds me of how as the Levites were in process of collecting funds for repairing the temple, that they found the book of the law. They, as it were, um, needed more space in which to store all the things that were being donated. And whilst they were clearing out space, they, they found this scroll. So there they were trying to be obedient to God's word as far as they knew it. And in the process of that, he revealed himself further to them. Not the reference to that, it's 2 Chronicles 34:14. And so, uh, maybe it's not the best translation, but I, I think of how Abraham's servant uh, reflects upon how he was led to Rebekah. He says, I being in the way. God led me to Rebecca. It's as if whilst we are in the process of serving the Lord, we will be led further. There is definitely an upward spiral in the spiritual experience, just as unfortunately there is a downward spiral. So it was out of that that Saul was called to make this first missionary journey to the Gentiles. And in verse 9, we notice for the first time the change of name. Saul, who also is called Paul. So, starting this first ever missionary journey for spreading the gospel into the, uh, into the Gentile world, Saul changes his name. And Paul means the little one. It's as if he begins this great work of spreading the gospel with a deep recognition of his own smallness. And so it has ever been that if we are really going to be used by the Lord, it does require becoming small, the little one, the Paul, in our own sight. Responding and feeling the, the grace that we have, we have received. And so it seems to me that that is what is so persuasive about the, a preacher of the gospel, a successful preacher, that the person clearly is convicted of their own weakness and frailty and is convinced of their forgiveness. And therefore, there is fused together within, as it were, the very texture of that personality, a sense of God's grace and the, the certainty that I will, if the Lord comes back today, I will live forever. I therefore have good news to tell you. And yet, on the other hand, this humility, this self-abnegation, this uh, smallness in one's own eyes, 
that comes from realising that I indeed am a sinner who has been forgiven. That's why the world is sick and tired of plush evangelists standing up there with their uh, perfect uh, credentials, as it were, flaunting themselves, their own righteousness, their own blessedness. I mean, who really is going to really be con converted to the Lord by such a person? In my experience, it is the people who admit their own weakness quite openly who are the ones who end up converting dozens of people. And so it is, as I say, in, uh, in life as, as we know it uh, now, and so it was back then. Now let's just push a little further with these similarities between Saul and, and Paul. Part of these similarities were without doubt set up by, by God, and some of them, Paul, as it were, took the prod, he took the, the cue that God gave him, that, hey, there's some similarity between you and, and King Saul, and he, he goes further with that himself. And that's really typically how God works in our lives. He prods us, and we try to attach a meaning to event, and we come to realize that, yes, he intends me to see myself in such and such a situation, and my life situation is similar, for example, to this Bible character or that Bible character, and then we respond on our own uh, initiative, as it were. Now, Saul was a Benjamite, and so was Paul. So straight away, that's one of the, uh, the, the prods that there was from God, which Saul or Paul himself could not have orchestrated. I think the reaction to Paul's conversion uh, must have been very similar to when people said about King Saul, is Saul also among the prophets? It's like, is Saul of Tarsus also among the Christians? Um, the way Paul was let down through a window to escape persecution was surely to remind him of what King Saul had done to David. That's uh, 1 Samuel 19, verse 12. As if there was a warning there, right at the beginning of Paul's ministry, don't be like your namesake, don't be like Saul. And of course, Saul's persecution of David, which is so clearly a type of the Jewish persecution of Jesus, I mean, this is exactly what Paul had done to the Christians. Yes, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? That this was to send his mind back to how the historical Saul had persecuted David as a type of Jesus. Now, Samuel says to Saul, in 1 Samuel 15, verse 17, When you were little, and the Hebrew means the littlest one, the smallest one, when you were little in your own sight, you were anointed by God and made the Rosh, the, the chief, over Israel. And so when Paul changes his name from Saul to Paul, the little one, I think he's saying, I want to get back to how Saul originally was. And I want to learn the lesson of his later failure and not be as self-willed as he was later on in his life. So he made a, a life decision, changing his name, as a result of sustained meditation on an Old Testament precedent and on just one Old Testament verse, there in 1 Samuel 15:17, that when Saul was little, the littlest one in his own eyes, then God used him. And we've got to ask ourselves whether our life decisions are based 
seriously on a reading of scripture. I mean, when we decided to get baptized, we studied the Bible and we saw the teaching there and we did something real and concrete and actual about it. We went and got wet. We got baptized. And so it, it has to continue. That process of concretely actually doing something as a result of what we have heard in God's word, as a result of a precedent or a principle that we perceive in the Bible, has got to continue. And so often it doesn't. And to keep on being sensitive to God's word is really quite, uh, quite the challenge. So then, when Saul is chosen to be king and uh, Samuel wants to anoint him and he's hiding amongst the stuff, we're told, he doesn't really want to be um, the great one. Uh, this is exactly how Paul wanted to be. He wanted to go back to the Saul who was the little one. That's why he changed his name to Paul, the, the little one. And again, you see that idea of Saul feeling the little one, King Saul at that time, when he says in 1 Samuel 9.21, Am not I a Benjamite of the smallest, of the littlest, of the poorest, if you like, of the tribes of Israel, and my family is the littlest of all the families of the tribe of Benjamin? And then you've, uh, you, you've got the incident in chapter 10 of 1 Samuel, verse 22, when Saul, the, the tallest man uh, of Israel, so we're asked to, to imagine, is found hiding and crouching amongst the stuff. Now, that obviously really somehow became a, a big guiding principle to Paul in the New Testament. He wanted to be how Saul originally was. And I think he has this in mind when he talks about how he is less than the least of all saints, the least of the apostles. Now, when he talks about that, being the least of all saints, 1 Corinthians 15.9, or the least of the apostles, Ephesians 3.8, I think he has in mind his own name that he'd chosen, Paul, the least one, the little one. And when he talks about himself as having been anointed, 2 Corinthians 1.21, I think again he has his eye on 1 Samuel 15.17, when Saul was little in his own eyes, then he was anointed. So, I don't know how many Bible characters are recorded within biblical history. I suppose it's a, a few hundred. And yet, those characters were carefully chosen by God. That's why there's major historical incidents that happened in biblical times that are not recorded. And instead, you read the story of some widow woman who was alive at the time in great detail. But those, however many there are, maybe 200 characters that are presented in some detail in the Bible are presented to us so that we might connect with them. Because let's face it, people connect with and respond to people rather than to abstract ideas. That's why biography and autobiography is so popular. You go around the shelves of a bookstore. I mean, it's autobiography and biography are extremely popular. People love a human interest story. God realises that that's how we're wired, <clears throat> that people relate to people. It's as simple as that. 
And that's why he, I think, has, has given us all this biblical history. And because of that, therefore, we are sort of encouraged uh, to relate to certain characters and to say, aha, this one is for me. At the beginning of 2 Corinthians 1, Paul really emphasizes this where he, he says that the whole purpose of our lives and our suffering and the experiences we go through is so that we might be a comfort to others. It's as if human life works out according to some pattern. And no one in that sense is totally uh, an island. No one is going through situations which nobody else has gone through. Of course, we all feel that that's how it is. Nobody can understand the stuff I've been through. You would not understand. I can't explain. Can't even begin. It'll be a waste of breath. But the whole point is that, yes, we can. Because, actually, human life works out according to patterns which God has chosen. And therefore there are intended similarities between us and people in Bible times and also between us and contemporary brothers and sisters. And insofar as we share our lives with each other, not in a gossipy sense, not in just a matey buddy kind of sense, but real spiritual fellowship and real sharing with each other, we'll realise that and we'll make uh, those connections and realise that you know, man is not alone. Really, we are not. Not only are we not alone in this world, but also there are people in the Bible who in essence have been through what we've been through. Now my point is that Paul perceived the lesson of Saul to such an extent that he changed his name. That's a fairly major thing to do. My question is, when was the last time when you perceived a similarity between yourself and some Bible character and actually made an actual concrete change? I will give up this job. I will give up that relationship. I will not go there anymore because da -de -da, I can see the precedent which there is in a certain Bible character, etc. That's where the Bible is unique. It is not just history. It is not a book like any other book. It is, as we know, a living word. And what that means is that it has this very intended personal relevance to each of us. Of course, the art of spiritual life is to perceive all this, and that should be our prayer daily, as we read the Bible, and as we try to make sense of our lives. Now, back in Acts 13, uh, verse 11, Paul encounters this guy, Elymas, and he makes him blind. He says, you should be blind and not see the sun for a season. And it falls upon him. Uh, this darkness, and he seeks someone to lead him by the hand. Now that's so similar to what happened to Paul. If you want the reference, it's Acts 9 verse 8. And I think that Paul was consciously seeking to replicate in Elymas his own conversion experience. So that Elymas would realize that the guy who's preaching to me, okay, now I really understand what he went through. Now, maybe it didn't work out in this case, that Elymas maybe didn't get it. And so often God sen sets up potentials in this kind of thing that are not realized because of human failure or human dysfunction. Now, Paul says in Ephesians 3, 7 and 20, that the power that worked in him, he sees as working in, in all of us. We've 
You get that again in Romans, where he says that he has been separated unto the gospel of God, and uh, he's alluding there to what we just read here in Acts 13, verse 2, and the Holy Spirit says, Separate me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work whereunto I have called them. Uh, and Paul says, you know, at the beginning of Romans, I've been separated uh, unto the gospel, and you also are the called. This is Romans 1, 6. Uh, you also are the called, the separated out ones of Jesus. As if he's saying, look, I'm not a special case. In essence, you are going through what I also have gone through. And of course, above all, we are to see in the Lord Jesus, the one to whom we can relate, and the one who really did walk our path before us. And I think that explains, well, is one window, shall I say, into explaining why he suffered so much, not only physically at the end, but in his whole tragic, in one sense, life. It was so that nobody on this earth subsequently could ever say, there is nobody who knows how I feel. There is no one who knows what I'm going through. Because there is, in heaven, in this sense, he died for every man. For this, in this sense, he suffered for us all, so that he might be a representative for each of us. And that involved a huge amount of suffering, because in essence that means that he knows what a stillbirth feels like for the woman. He knows the essence of postnatal depression. It's no good saying, yeah, he was a bloke. Yes, he was, but because of the, the unique nature of his life and the breadth of his sufferings, he can say, you know, I am your friend and your comforter and your representative in heaven before God because I know. Because in essence I was there. Now, we therefore can, I think, better understand why when we come down to uh, verse 47 Paul says something at first blush I think a bit strange he explains why he's preaching the gospel to the Gentiles and he says uh, well, at the end of 46 he says lo we turn to the Gentiles because so has the Lord commanded us now the Lord in Acts is usually the Lord Jesus for so has the Lord Jesus commanded us, saying, and now he quotes from Isaiah 49, verse 6, one of the servant songs about Jesus, I have set you, and the AV has, I have set thee, that is you singular, I have set you singular, Jesus, to be a light of the Gentiles, that you singular should be for salvation unto the ends of the earth. Now, this is a prophecy, then, about the Lord Jesus personally, that he was to be the light of the Gentile world. And Paul says, I am going to preach to the Gentiles and Barnabas with me, because the Lord Jesus commanded us, saying, in that, God set him personally, Jesus personally, to be a light of the Gentiles. So then, Paul takes a statement about Jesus personally, and not only does he say that applies to me, but he says that that is therefore a commandment to me. So therefore everything that is true of Jesus 
becomes true of us, and therefore and thereby who he was in every aspect of his life becomes an imperative to us, it becomes a commandment to us. So often you, you find this taught when you look at all the servant songs, the prophecies of Isaiah about Jesus personally, so often they are quoted about individuals in, in the New Testament who are in Christ. At the end of Romans, Romans 15:21, you've got uh, that servant song in Isaiah 52:15, uh, "That which had not been told them shall they see, and that which they had not heard shall they consider." You see that quoted about Paul preaching the gospel, taking Christ to those who had not heard. So, absolutely everything is that that's true of Jesus becomes true of us. So then, that prophecy there in Isaiah 49.6, that Jesus would be the light of the Gentile world, Paul takes that as a command to him personally. And incidentally, he quotes the same verse, Isaiah 49.6, later on in Acts, in Acts 26.23, about Jesus personally. That uh, he had to be resurrected to show light unto the people of Israel and to the Gentiles. So he clearly understood it as applying to Jesus personally, and yet also to he himself personally. Now, in this then, we have a, a huge challenge. That we are not just spectators at a show. In fact, we are not spectators at any show. It's not as if we on earth are looking back in history to the crucifixion and saying, Wow, wasn't that great? We are asked to participate in that. It's not that we are Roman Catholics in a, in a cathedral looking at the stained glass windows and looking at uh, pictures, whatever, of Jesus and thinking, wow, isn't that cool, isn't that cute, wasn't that amazing? There is an imperative to personal action within him. And this really, I think, is brought together at the breaking of bread. That we wonder, should I be thinking about Jesus or should I be thinking about my own response to him when we're told to examine ourselves well we are asked to focus solely upon him and yet in focusing upon him there in his time of dying and marveling at the certainty of our salvation and the totality of the forgiveness of sin which there is in him you cannot be passive you can't just shrug your shoulders and say oh yeah that, that's great you, you feel that you must respond you have to respond and in that sense, the word of the cross, which Paul talks about, is not only the word which is about the cross, but the word which is the cross. That it speaks to us. It is a commandment to us. Just as God's word to individual Israelites, we're told in Numbers 7, was heard over the, the blood that was sprinkled upon the uh, upon the, the ark, which was, of course, symbolizing the, the blood of Jesus, that his word, his death, his blood, is in that sense God's word to us. And that leads us quite appropriately to focus upon him as he was there, as in a sense he is, and also, therefore, to hear the voice of command which comes out from that same vision.